0: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield.
1: And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Happy New Year! Happy New Year. What does that really mean? Happy and new are, after all, relative terms. Their meanings hang on the context in which they're invoked. And year? Well, its actual meaning is fixed, but it's also used as an emotional marker. I was there for a week, but it felt like a year. I can't believe it's been a year. That was just a year ago? It can mean the blink of an eye or eternity. On this show, we've put together a couple of recent pieces and a vintage one to consider some of the feelings stirred up in 2017 and how to manage them in the year to come.
0: It was just a year ago, right before the inauguration, in fact, I was in the editorial meeting, and even through the speakerphone connecting me with the team in New York, the staff detected in my voice a slight suicidal despondency. Hey, Bob, one helpful producer asked, have you ever read Hope in the Dark? Hope in the Dark by the activist and philosopher Rebecca Solnit is a kind of manual of hope laying out the many times citizen action has averted disaster and changed the course of history. It's a book that has no patience with despair. And though it was written in 2004, it's lately been flying off the shelves. Wouldn't it be swell, Bob, for you to speak to Rebecca Solnit? So, I did. Can you start off, please, by reading from the beginning of your first essay, Looking Into Darkness?
2: With pleasure, on January eighteenth, nineteen 1915, six months into the First World War, as all Europe was convulsed by killing and dying, Virginia Woolf wrote in her journal, the future is dark, which is on the whole the best thing the future can be, I think. Dark, she seems to say, as in inscrutable, not as in terrible. We often mistake the one for the other. Oh, we transform the future's unknowability into something certain, the fulfillment of all our dread, the place beyond which there is no way forward. But again and again, far stranger things happen than the end of the world. Who two decades ago could have imagined a world in which the Soviet Union had vanished and the internet had arrived? Who then dreamed that the political prisoner Nelson Mandela would become president of a transformed South Africa? Who foresaw the resurgence of the indigenous world, of which the Zapatista uprising in southern Mexico is only the most visible face? Who four decades ago could have conceived of the changed status of all who are non-white, non-male, or non-straight, the wide-open conversations about power, nature, economies, and ecologies? There are times when it seems as though not only the future but the present is dark, few recognize what a radically transformed world we live in, one that has been transformed not only by such nightmares as global warming and global capital, but by dreams of freedom, of justice, and transformed by things that we could not have dreamed of.
0: No matter what the scope of history one day will provide, in the foreseeable future, We are likely, as a society, to go abruptly and maybe irretrievably backwards on civil rights, human rights, climate, sanity. Isn't a man permitted to be morose and desperate without surrendering? Isn't that a reasonable reaction to horrible events? You're talking about two different things. How do we feel
2: and what do we do? And I'm not telling people how to feel. I'm telling people that there is scope for action. One of the great conundrums is that unless we believe there are possibilities, we don't act, but the possibilities only exist if we seize them. I'm not an optimist. Optimism believes that everything will be fine no matter what we do, and therefore we don't have to do a damn thing. Pessimism is the mirror image of that, that believes that everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and it gets us off the hook. We don't have to do anything. Hope for me is deeply tied to the fact that we don't know what will happen. This gives us grounds to act. And the Trump administration is such an amplifier of uncertainty. Will the guy have some kind of breakdown? Will he get impeached? Will he start World War IV? Will the Republican Party split? Will the Democratic Party find its backbone? So I think that there's grounds to stay engaged while being clear that terrible things are happening and we should mourn them.
0: I mentioned in the introduction your impatience with what you see as a kind of self-indulgence of despair. And I couldn't help but notice that because I took it as a personal affront. In the context of the Gulf War, you called that kind of self-indulgence the conversation. Could you read that passage? Sometime before the election
2: was over, I vowed to keep away from what I thought of as the conversation, the tailspin of mutual wailing about how bad everything was, a recitation of the evidence against us, one exciting opportunity the left offers us is of being your own prosecutor that just buried any hope and imagination down in a dank little foxhole of curled-up despair. Now I watch people having it, wondering what it is we get from it. The certainty of despair, is even that kind of certainty so worth pursuing? Stories trap us, stories free us. We live and die by stories. But hearing people have the conversation is hearing them tell themselves a story they believe is being told to them. What other stories can be told? How do people recognize that they have the power to be storytellers, not just listeners?
0: Is there a place in this calculus, though, for the issue of running out of time, particularly with the environment? If there's a place for despair, might that be it? And you keep wanting to talk
2: about despair, and I'm just not very interested in it. The situation on climate, which I spent a lot of time looking at and trying to do something about as an activist, is really bleak, but there's wiggle room in there. You know, a lot of extraordinary stuff is happening, and it's happening in very complex ways. One thing that not very many people have noticed, because it's a change so incremental, is that the technology of renewable non-carbon energy has evolved so dramatically over the last dozen years that we're in a completely different place than we were at the beginning of the millennium. Bloomberg News ran a story that within the decade, solar power is likely to be cheaper than coal, which is the cheapest fossil fuel. We actually have the energy solutions, and they are being adapted pretty rapidly in a lot of places. You know, we also are looking at the Antarctic ice shelf cracking. We're looking at sea level rise. We're looking at chaotic weather. We're in a very deep crisis. You know, and I want people to be able to hold both of those things. We're not talking about a future that's already written.
0: The occasion for this encounter session is that my particular hand-wringing and you talking me down acts as a proxy for others in the audience who are feeling approximately the same way I am. But I just want to move away from that for just one moment and ask you about the role of the media.
2: What we get from the mainstream media over and over and over is a story that what we do doesn't matter. We have had huge impacts. We have changed what constitutes what's acceptable and ordinary in innumerable ways. You can tell the story of same-sex marriage as, oh, the Supreme Court in its beneficence handed this nice thing down to us. But the Supreme Court decided that this was normal because millions of people had transformed our society in powerful ways, over decades about what was normal, and so they did what seemed reasonable, but we defined what reasonable is. And that's the kind of thing I want people to hang on to, because we're going to have to define what's ethical, what's acceptable, what's realistic, what's true. Particularly as we enter this regime made almost entirely out of lies, there's going to be a fight over who defines reality and what's true and who we believe.
0: All right, stipulated. The future is inscrutable, but humor me, please. Tell me everything's going to be all right.
2: It's not going to be all right. It's going to be really interesting, and some beautiful and remarkable things are going to happen, and a lot of destruction that's underway is not entirely irreversible as regards the climate. But again, there's wiggle room. You know, the day after New Orleans flooded... Hundreds or maybe thousands of boat owners from inside the city and as far away as Texas went into the city with their boats to rescue people from rooftops and attics. Thousands of people were saved. And in the months and years after Hurricane Katrina, the biggest volunteer effort took place in American history, and it really changed. You know, that city could be dead, and it's not dead. I mean, some very good things came out of that. The future is not yet written What the story is depends on what we make it, and that's really what I'm here to say.
0: Rebecca, thank you very much.
2: You're welcome. Doing my best.
0: Rebecca Solnit is a writer, historian, and activist. She's the author of Hope in the Dark, Untold Histories, Wild Possibilities. She also has a column in Harper's Magazine and writes regularly for The Guardian. Coming
1: up, this is your brain
0: on mindfulness. This is On The Media.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive?
0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
0: And I'm Bob Garfield. So, Rebecca Solnit showed how knowing what public action has done and can do, and doing that, is a key to managing woe. But there's more you can do. You can turn your eyes around in your head and begin separating the emotional wheat from the chaff. But how? Buddhists would advise you to let it rain.
1: R. Recognize your emotions as they churn through your body. A. Accept them and don't try to change them. I. Investigate them, but don't psychoanalyze. Stay close to the raw experience. And finally, N. Non-identify. Detach. These emotions may fly through you, but they are not you. Recognize, accept, investigate, non-identify, reign. But how do you get there from here? How do we short-circuit the wiring that leads to embracing bad information that supports our views and the reflexive dismissal of the character and motives of those not within our own tribe? Bob Wright, author of Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment, says that before we can get our minds moving in a healthier direction, we first have to know where they've been.
4: Brains were designed by natural selection to do one thing, get genes into the next generation in a particular environment, in something more like a hunter-gatherer environment. And that's why I see crazy things like road rage that don't seem to make any sense. I mean, rage made a little more sense in a different environment. Explain. Um, Well, in a hunter-gatherer environment, rage gets you to demonstrate that you cannot be taken advantage of. Somebody tries to steal a possession, a mate, whatever. You show you're willing to fight. You get mad enough to fight. Even if you lose the fight, you've demonstrated that there's a cost, okay? Well, you take this out On the highway, well, first of all, nobody who's watching is. are you ever going to see again. There's no point in demonstrating anything to them. Plus, now you're going 80 miles an hour, and the consequences could be worse. And, you know, same with a lot of things, anxiety, guilt. A lot of things kind of misfire in the modern environment.
1: Give me an example of how guilt misfires.
4: You might feel you did something to somebody. You wonder, did I offend them? And you feel a little guilty, But they're not, like, living right next door to you. You won't see them around the campfire that night. And and that kind of thing can fester for a long time and just go unresolved. It's it's not quite worth emailing them about, and you're left there wondering. That just didn't happen in the natural environment. Everyone you interacted with, you interacted with pretty much all the time.
1: So what you've got is uh, an accumulation of... Like a haystack full of little twigs that you carry around like a weight that are meaningless and that
4: don't matter. Yeah, well, one of the take-homes of Buddhism is that you should not assume that your feelings have the meaning they seem to have. You know, when they tell you this person is a bad person or you should be upset about this— Don't assume that they're giving you good guidance. And and mindfulness meditation is, to a large extent, a way of looking at your feelings from a more objective standpoint. It doesn't mean you don't have feelings. You experience them, but you exert more conscious control over which feelings you let carry you away and carry your train of thought away. You are
1: not the first person I would assume would take a plunge into Buddhism you seem to be far more engaged in examining faith than in embracing it.
4: It's true that I'm not a natural meditator. It doesn't come easily to me. I don't have a good attention span. Me either. You have ADD? Yeah. Me too. I, I mean, to get into meditation at all, I had to go to a silent meditation retreat. Not everyone does, but that's what it took for somebody like me. But as for the fact that I'm analytical as you said i mean mindfulness meditation is more analytical than people appreciate in the sense that it's a way of learning to kind of step back and analyze the feelings and and, and thoughts inside your head a, at least a way of viewing them with a kind of a calm objectivity
1: i have an idea for spellbinding radio right now i'm ready <laughs> Show me how to meditate.
5: (laughs) Show you how to meditate.
4: First of all, I don't have a license. No one should do anything I say from here on in, but what they typically say is, you know, close your eyes, assume a relaxed posture, pay attention to your breath, maybe pick a point like where it's entering your nose and exiting your nose. Some people pay attention to the rising and falling of the abdomen, but pick something to pay attention to. And then, you know, just... Watch it. And your mind is going to wander. Don't get mad at yourself or beat yourself up. When you notice that your mind is wandering, that's a small kind of victory. So if anything, congratulate yourself. And then you'll get back to the breath.
1: Okay, your brain is calm. You've done the breathing for... Mm -hmm. two hours or something. And once you've gotten good at that, no matter how many days it takes you, then you start concentrating on the sound of a bird outside the window
4: or what? You could. I would say what's most relevant to this question of tribalism is focusing on your feelings and look at how you're reacting to things. What feeling? I remember I was at a treat once and there was this guy who started snoring. He was falling asleep. And this really annoyed me. I'm like, I'm trying to meditate. And then I remembered, oh, wait, you're supposed to just be aware of your reaction. And the thing about a meditation retreat is you can get so, I I guess you might say, good at this, at least (laughs) temporarily several days into a retreat, that once you see a feeling like my kind of wrath for the person, I literally see it and I focus on it in a way that just dissolves it in the moment. You mean
1: like as a big gray yeah. ball Well, of- you
4: see where in your body... I mean, mm-hmm. feelings reside somewhere in your body. If you are feeling sad and you sit down and just examine the sadness, which is a good shortcut, by the way. Skip the breath. Just wait until you have a feeling like sadness and, and sit down, close your eyes and so and say, well, what does sadness feel like? And you, you'll probably notice it tends to be some of it is up around your eyes and, and maybe elsewhere, but just the very act of observation... You're no longer thinking the sad thoughts that the sadness would make you think. Instead, you're just looking at the sadness, and that in itself is a measure of liberation. You had
1: mentioned that mindfulness helps you combat our natural tribalism because that's an emotional thing, and you can identify it, and then you can manage it better, and, and a, a big part of that is confirmation bias, which is our tendency to accept and retain information that supports our views and reject or ignore information that doesn't. Because in the final analysis, confirmation bias has nothing to do with thinking and everything to do with feeling.
4: Right. You know, confirmation bias is what drives fake news on both sides. You know, I think we've all done this thing of either sharing something on Facebook or retweeting something that turned out to be misleading or untrue, And we shared it without actually examining it. And if you ask yourself, why did you share it or retweet it? The answer is because it felt good, for example, recently, Trump went to Japan and this story spread that he had shown that he didn't even understand that Japanese automakers make cars in the U.S. It turned out if you looked at his remarks in their entirety, that wasn't true. He clearly did understand that. But that spread... But CNN reported... To the point of CNN doing a little piece about how he didn't even understand this. And that was just not true. But if you ask, how did the story get magnified in the first place? You see the tweet and... It feels good to share it because you have this idea that Trump is stupid and it it feels good to confirm that view. And, And that's the kind of feeling that you will become more aware of if you do mindfulness meditation.
1: There's another kind of bias that you talk about in the book that maybe holds treatment for our poisonous politics.
4: Yeah, there's a really fascinating cognitive bias that I think has not gotten enough attention, and it's a form of what's called attribution error. In everyday life, you might be standing at a checkout counter, the person in front of you is rude to the clerk, and you think, that's a rude person. So you're attributing the rudeness to the kind of person they are. When, you know, for all you know, they have just found out that their spouse has cancer or something, you just don't know why they're behaving that way. And it turns out that how we do the attribution depends on whether somebody is in our tribe or outside of our tribe. So if it's somebody in our tribe and they do something good, we say, well, yeah, that's the kind of person they are. They're a good person. If they do something bad, then we explain it away and attribute it to circumstance. You know, they were under peer group pressure or whatever. Whereas people in the enemy tribe, if they do something bad, you say, yeah, Trump supporters do bad things. Naturally, they did this thing. If they do something good, you explain it away as being due to circumstance. And I think this kind of thing, it gets us into wars and it does help sustain the tribal conflict. And what
1: but even it, more so – Once you've got this explanation, you have no need to seek another. So basically, this kind of attribution bias is a really big impediment to breaching the walls between tribes and increasing our understanding.
4: It, It impedes understanding. There are two kinds of empathy. People would imagine that the whole point of mindfulness meditation is to give you empathy in the traditional feel-their pain sense. You know, in other words, emotional empathy. I feel sorry for the people on the other side. There's also something called cognitive empathy, which is just understanding what it's like to be them and why they do the things they do. And mindfulness meditation can help you, regardless of whether you even care about them, regardless of whether you feel their pain. It can help you get a clearer view of why they did the things they did. And in the case of Trump, it can help you understand that, well, it's not as simple as them all being racist or all being stupid or all being anything else. Different Trump voters were responding to different things. Some of them are actual issues that need addressing. But in any event, it seems to be the first step toward not getting Trump elected again is to understand clearly how he got elected, and I think it's important to understand that our minds naturally impede this kind of understanding and we should be suspicious of them.
1: Okay, but I want you to make a better case to all the people who say to me when I say, we need to listen to the other side, they say, why should we mindfully meditate when they aren't going to?
4: You know, what's in it for us? If we spread less misleading information about the opposition, and say less gratuitously unflattering things about them, which isn't to say you don't criticize Trump when he does something horrible. It's that you try to distinguish between the genuinely horrible things he's done, and there's enough of those to keep you occupied, and the kind of form of outrage that, you know, including just things like (laughs) – Look, I was as amused as anyone by Melania wearing high heels to a hurricane. But is it really worth spreading that as like a whole liberal meme that we're making fun of the first lady? Because I do think that there are these feedback effects and a calmer, more deliberate approach is the beginning of calming things down. Because a big part of Trump's support derives from the the idea that his followers are hated and held in contempt by coastal elites.
1: I also think getting exercised over the trivial invites fatigue and makes you less likely to sustain effective political action.
4: Right. Part of this is like a mental health issue. I mean, I just know a lot of people who spend a lot of time on Facebook or Twitter and they wind up feeling horrible because they are so outraged. And I'm not advocating that you use meditation as some kind of insulation from what's going on you could use meditation as a sedative that's not what i'm recommending i'm recommending using it to clarify your vision the term i use is mindful resistance i'm putting out a weekly newsletter now called the mindful resistance newsletter and it's an attempt to help people focus on things that are really important and process every day's news in a way that is conducive to their own mental health and conducive to their own effective action.
1: Bob, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Brooke. Bob Wright is the author of Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment.
0: Coming up, anxious, hopeless. Uh Uh-huh. So what else is new?
1: This is On The Media.
3: On the Media is brought to you by ZBiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. ZBiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. ZBiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash OTM to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off.
0: At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry.
3: But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories, stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
1: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
0: Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is On The Media. I'm Bob Garfield.
1: And I'm Brooke Gladstone. With a piece from 2014, which many people felt was the worst time ever. What with beheadings by ISIS and Ebola in Africa... We're re-airing it because so much has changed, or maybe because not much has changed. The truth is, we have experienced a strong strain of nihilism throughout the third millennium. So we'll be spending this next segment staring into the abyss and pondering why nihilism is so trendy now and whether this really is something new. This all came up when Jad Abumrad, host of Radio Lab, he works down the hall, told me about what happened to his brother-in-law, Eugene Thatcher. He's an author and professor of philosophy who recently explored nihilism in the genres of horror
6: and black metal music.
5: In fact, probably more people have worn my book than have <laughs> read it.
1: Actually, that's Eugene. Here's Jad.
6: Okay, so basically, you know the story. Eugene writes a book, gives it an evocative title. Suddenly that book becomes a painting. Suddenly that painting becomes a T-shirt. And then suddenly one half of the highest grossing tour of all times is wearing it on his back.
1: The cover of Eugene's book, In the Dust of This Planet, was emblazoned on Jay-Z's jacket in the trailer for his and Beyonce's recent tour. Yep, Eugene's apocalyptic title was accessorized.
6: I thought, okay, let let me actually think about this in a deep way. The joke in my family is that Eugene writes books for no one. Suddenly, is he now not just writing books for no one anymore, but he has somehow become a conduit. He's channeling something that we're all in a kind of like underground, subterranean way, that way that pop culture operates. We're all feeling. Does this represent something beyond simple, mere appropriation? To which you would say what? I would
1: say yes. You would say yes? What I would argue with is the part that you haven't asked. Which is? Is this unique to this moment? Ah. To that I would say
5: no. At a certain moment, a culture discovers that its most esteemed values are for nothing. Nihilism is that moment where you have the rug pulled out from under you and nothing takes its place.
1: Frederick Nietzsche, anticipating the coming crisis of faith in the mid-19th century, rocked by Darwin's scientific breakthroughs in the Industrial Revolution, famously declared,
5: God is dead, and God remains dead because we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves?
1: But in fact, he embraced the void and urged us to reinvent reality for ourselves.
5: Only now are you going your way to greatness. Peak and abyss, they are now joined together. For all things are baptized in a well of eternity and lie beyond good and evil.
6: So he would say, embrace this nothingness and then breathe out something new and flowery and beautiful?
5: This is what he hoped. And there's an alarming sort of vigor and enthusiasm in his late writings, you know. Uh, But Nietzsche, of course, also had a mental breakdown and and was mute the last 10 years of his life, so...
2: Hmm.
1: Why did you name your book In the Dust of the Planet?
5: Uh, To be honest, um, I had just done a body of work that was very much straight-up philosophy. And... That world, it's a very different world. And I just wanted to have a title that was more evocative. And of, as, that was just more evocative. I mean... It's stylish, man. Well, uh, I don't know. Jad had to really convince me. on I'm still <laughs> not convinced. I mean, we live in a culture of pervasive pandemic decontextualization. It's just it looks like a cool phrase to go on a t-shirt to put on a goth girl in some photo shoot.
1: And why is it cool?
5: It's cool because some publicist... No, decided. No no no, 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 no. The idea that works is this pop nihilism. But that's not what's in the book.
1: What's the pop nihilism again?
5: The pop nihilism is... Using the fact that I don't believe in anything as a smokescreen for completely selfish activity. And the philosophies I'm talking about are talking about the exact
1: opposite of that. I think it means, look at me. I am staring down the abyss. I am so above the common man who is scared of death.
6: I am brave.
1: That I can wear it on a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, I would go with that.
5: I think that that is nothing more than a posture, and that's why it's in pop culture, because that's what pop culture is.
6: Do you feel like in the culture at large, we might all be having more and more days of true pessimism, and maybe even enjoying our own limits?
5: Definitely a lot more media out there, and we know a lot more about what's going on in the world, so you can draw conclusions from that. When I take this bottle and go recycle it, I, like, know now that it probably just goes into the trash or into a big floating island of plastic in the ocean. You know, does that change the way I behave then? I mean, that's sort of a thing that each individual person deals with.
1: In which case, why do you bother?
5: Why do we bother? I mean, I'm reminded of the opening of Boccaccio's Decameron as a group of people beset by the Black Plague. And what you see almost down the line in plague literature is two responses to the plague, which basically meant, you know, the end of the world. You either had people that would hole up in churches, hold vigils and pray, or you had people getting drunk in the streets and just partying and going crazy. Post 9-11, do we not have that kind of situation now of like religious fanaticism and this badass, you know, in front of the apocalypse kind of thing?
1: So, Jad went off to explore the present to learn whether this is, in fact, a uniquely nihilistic moment. We'll link to that Radiolab piece. And we went back to the past for an answer to the same question. So... Let's start in the present, the current drumbeat of bad news. Here's Jad's montage. A
0: video showing the beheading of a second American journalist has now been verified.
3: Disease experts say this is turning into one of the longest, deadliest outbreaks ever. The girls were gang-raped and strangled. Once again, it is
1: mostly children we are seeing brought into this hospital. ISIS, Ebola, mayhem. And a recent UN Commission report tells us to prepare for global warming, it's too late to stop it. Meanwhile, Hollywood gushes extinction tropes. Why is The Walking Dead the most popular TV drama for the cherished 18 to 49 demographic? Perhaps because zombies are the ultimate nihilists? They are, after all, the apotheosis of pointlessness, shambling aimlessly in, shall I say it, in the dust of this planet, eating the brains and sucking the souls of the living, reduced like the zombies to wandering and foraging. Season 5 debuts October 12. Cable channel AMC is creating a spin-off seems as good a time as any for a quick taxonomy of nihilism. There's existential nihilism, the belief that life is meaningless. Political nihilism, the belief that political systems are pointless and should be overthrown. Then there's ethical and moral nihilism. You can probably work that one out. And epistemological nihilism, the belief that you can know nothing. And finally ontological nihilism, the belief that nothing is real, so there's nothing to know. In The Matrix, Agent Smith embodies them all.
3: you believe you're fighting for
1: something, for more than your survival? Can you tell me what it is?
5: Do you even know? Is it freedom or truth?
1: Perhaps peace? Could it be for love? Illusions, Mr. Anderson, vagaries of perception. Temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose. The moral nihilist finds its fullest expression in Rorschach, a killer of killers in the comic book series Watchmen. This installment of his story is called The Abyss Gazes Also. That's a nod to Nietzsche's warning to beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster, for when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you.
0: Streets stank of fire. The void breathed hard on my heart. Turning its illusions to ice, shattering them. Was reborn then, free to scrawl own design on this morally blank world? Was Rorschach. Does that answer your questions, Doctor?
1: That was in the 80s. The '70s, what with the Vietnam War, Watergate, a listless economy, rampant crime, and streets steeped in the sour funk left by the spoiled ardor of the '60s, was a prime decade for nihilism, and punk was its medium. Iggy Pop, Sid Vicious, Johnny Rotten, Richard Hell, and the Voidoids. I Now that was a far cry from the ecstatic nihilism of the late 50s and early 60s, which was a rebuke to the stifling conformity of the Eisenhower era and a finger flung at the likely prospect of nuclear annihilation. In 1959, Allen Ginsberg said that America was having a nervous breakdown, inciting exaltation, despair, prophecy, strain, suicide, and public gaiety among the poets. He published Howl in 1956.
0: Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American river. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit.
1: Further back into the post-war era, existentialism, which is pretty much existential nihilism, flowers. The word was coined in France, but the idea begins with early 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who argued that each individual is responsible for giving his or her life meaning. The French variant was advanced by Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and Albert Camus amid the disgrace of the intellectual establishment. The climate of cynicism and despair also gave rise to the theater of the absurd. Sartre wasn't an absurdist, but he did write fiction, like nausea.
2: Here we all are, all of us eating and drinking to preserve our precious
0: existence. And there's nothing nothing absolutely no reason for existing
1: but for me the nihilist movement non Nonpareil was the one that sprang to life in a Zurich nightclub called Cafe Voltaire after the first world war which makes sense because of the unmatched enormity and pointlessness of that war. Nihilism thrived in every sphere and spawned a kind of performance art philosophy called Dada. One of its founders, Tristan Sara, recommended cutting up a newspaper article into words and phrases, throwing them into a bag, and then randomly reassembling them into poetry. He said Dada did not signify in art, but a disgust with the, quote, magnificence of philosophers. What good did their theories do us, he asked. We are, we argue, we dispute, we get excited. All the rest is sauce. You don't
6: think this says anything about now?
1: Now, Chad was really resistant to the idea that today's tendency towards nihilism is pretty much the same as all the others, at least in its general contours. If that, I mean, these days a movement is co-opted before it even gets off the ground. I argued that if, as some suggest, faith is part of our wiring, so is nihilism. Actually, maybe I was a little overemphatic. Didn't you go through a period when you didn't think anything was real? When I was like eight, I would look at everything around me and think it was just a backdrop. I'd take my hand sometimes and I would drag it along the sidewalk till I made it bleed. Really? To see if it felt more real. Huh. I think at some point, any intelligent person questions the truth of everything that's around them.
6: Mm-hmm. hmm The cultural argument I would make is that there's a nowness to this particular flavor of it because if you just turn on the news, mm-hmm. it, you will see an endless stream of misery that is not just depressing, which it is. It's greater than anything I've ever experienced in my childhood.
1: I want to pull up here on the computer... Something that occurred after a time of enormous disorder after World War I, the manifesto of Tristan Sara. Mm-hmm. And he says, everything one looks at is false. If I shout ideal, 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 knowledge, 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 boom, 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 I have given a pretty faithful version of progress, law, morality, and all the other fine qualities that various highly intelligent men have discussed in so many books. Only to conclude that after all, everyone dances to his own personal boom, boom, and that the writer is entitled to his boom, boom.
5: This is so great.
1: <laughs> Dada. Dada. Abolition of logic, which is the dance of those impotent to create. Dada, abolition of memory. Dada, abolition of archaeology. Dada, abolition of prophets. Dada, abolition of the
6: future. That is incredible. It's so full of spirit and vigor that it almost contradicts its negation.
1: It is dropping the heavy, blood-soaked mantle of the war and the lies that were told Mm -hmm. to all the people who were sent in to fight that pointless war. Mm. All of the pictures of trench warfare were suppressed until after, and hence you had what was called the lost generation. A lost generation is ripe for nihilism, an active and positive embrace of what seems to be the only kind of truth, which is
6: that there isn't one. The cycle that we're in now, I mean, it doesn't feel positive in a way. I get that.
1: But Camus said that accepting the absurdity of everything around us is just one step. It should not become a dead end. It arouses a revolt that can become fruitful. Hey, did you know that Nietzsche wrote music? He wrote this. Apparently, the first time his good friend Richard Wagner heard one of his compositions, he ran out of the room screaming with laughter. Brutal. Okay, so where were we? We touched on Nietzsche, mentioned Kierkegaard. I'm going to skip over really important people like Heidegger and Schopenhauer, the Russian anarchist Bakunin, and the Russian novelist Turgenev, who popularized the word nihilism in his novel Fathers and Children. Now I'm looking for household names. Some say Hamlet was a nihilist because he called man a quintessence of dust. I think he was just depressed. But Shakespeare really knew how to build an existential nihilist when he wanted to.
4: Out,
1: out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon
5: the
6: stage, and then Is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury,
2: signifying
6: nothing.
1: The hour, this meaningless hour, is drawing to its inevitable end, as are we all, so I'll rush back to the Greeks. Epicurus really fits my premise. He lived in a chaotic time right after the death of Alexander the Great and during the subsequent collapse of Hellenism. He was, in a sense, the Er Alfred E. Newman. Epicureans sought to reach a state of being called ataraxia, that is, utterly free of care. The world was created by chance. The gods, if they exist, don't care about us. Love and politics are not worth the trouble. As for death, he said, "'Accustom yourself to believe that death is nothing to us, for good and evil imply awareness, and death is the privation of all awareness.'" Therefore, a right understanding that death is nothing to us makes the mortality of life enjoyable, not by adding to life an unlimited time, but by taking away the yearning after immortality. In other words, forget about it. But if Dada is my favorite expression of nihilism, this last one is definitely runner-up. So I'm going to bring back Chad and Cher.
6: Go ahead, eat your food and be happy. Drink your wine and be cheerful. It's all right with God. Always look happy and cheerful. Enjoy life with the one you love as long as you live the useless life that God has given you in this world. Enjoy every useless day of it because that is all you will get for all your trouble. Who is that?
1: That's Ecclesiastes. Oh,
6: really? <laughs> That's nihilism in a place I wouldn't have expected.
1: <laughs> so, I submit that as my quad era demonstrandum.
6: Oh, is it your contention that this means nihilism is a sort of a, like a, a hum that goes through all times and not anything specific to this time?
1: Right. We can't escape
6: the fact of our own death. hmm <laughs> am I supposed to say something now? Am I supposed to argue with you? I could. I. I. I suddenly am persuaded. Whoever's talking, I just agree. <laughs> Should I argue with you? Sure. It seems to me that we're all having those thoughts a little bit more, and our responses to those thoughts are different now than they ever have been. You can do any number of responses. You can decide to live a great life and have yoga and grow zucchini, or you can decide, F it, and, you know, just be a hedonist. But there's some way in which we're all responding in a way that just is like a kind of a shrug, like, uh, forget it. It just seems to me, when I think about the ways in which people are thinking about climate change, I think about, it doesn't seem, maybe I'm just depressed, Brooke. Is that what, is that what I'm just saying to you?
1: <laughs> you have two small kids. I just don't think you have enough sleep. It <laughs> could I, be. I think a true nihilist has to have a lot of energy.
6: Yeah. That is true.
1: As I went through my exploration of it, you know, you have Camus who says that the best response is to rebel. Rebel against death. Create life on your own terms. Build it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And one way or another, we do. Sometimes we don't live a very conscious life, but we're living a life. I just think that this time, if anything... We have just grown vaguely uncomfortable in this world that seems so chaotic, but in our lives, barely touches us. Essentially, we're taking in the world through the media. So it may feel more deadening, Mm -hmm. but it's less intense. If you ever had to confront it because the conditions of your life have just crumbled to dust and your beliefs can no longer be sustained— I bet you'd have more energy for it.
6: Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I think I'm I'm with you on that one. There's a sort of a seduction to the idea of nihilism because in one version of it, it can be an energetic, strong, well, it's like revolution. It's like saying no to something, and there's something very powerful and intoxicating about that. But then there's different kind of nihilism. It just goes, uh, it's a sigh nihilism versus a rah nihilism. And I, I guess that in an ambient sense is the nihilism that I smell in the air. I wonder if
1: that's what you'd call it, though. I think what you're sensing is actually apathy.
6: Yeah, that's another word for it.
1: Well, that's cheerful.
6: <laughs> you want to oh. get a beer? <laughs>
0: That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, and Sarah Chadwick-Gibson, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo.
1: Katya Rogers is our executive producer, Jim Schachter's WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios.
0: I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. And we don't
1: care. Do you see that on the next page? Oh, no. Happy Happy New Year. (laughs) Let me try that again. (laughs) One, two,
0: three. Happy Happy
1: New Year. Uh, Are you deliberately being later than me? Okay, know. you start it first, then I'll try okay. it.
0: Three, two, one. Happy, Happy New, New Year! Year. <laughs> wow, it really sounds stilted. Faster. Three, two, one. Happy, Happy, Happy New, New Year! Year.
3: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.